I've always believed that you can't fail if you tried because so much of the hurdle in life is just saying yes or just pursuing something. And a lot of times we let fear or the possibility of rejection prevent us from even trying and how can you grow or learn if you do that? And so while I'm not good at everything and while I certainly have had my share of rejection in my career, I've never had a fear of trying. I've never had a fear of failing. You know, let's say tomorrow I try to do a Broadway show and, you know, it opens and closes the same day. That won't feel great, but I won't feel like I failed because I at least tried, at least did it. Hey there, welcome to Theater Life Uncensored, where we peel back the curtain and reveal to you what's really working in today's industry for theater artists just like you. That means you get to hear and learn how to surpass your career goals sooner and enjoy an easier, more peaceful life along the way. I'm your host, Jim Cooney, a New York City-based director-choreographer, and I'm also the founder of Amplified Artists, a membership community for theater professionals from performers to producers and everyone in between, helping you create a career and life you love. So today, I am talking to a dear friend of mine, Tony-winning producer Rashad V. Chambers, who's also a talent manager and lawyer. He produced the Tony-winning revival of Top Dog Underdog, as well as Fat Ham, The Music Man, Ain't Too Proud, American Son, the list goes on and on. He's also the founder and president of Esquire Entertainment, which is a talent management firm, and they also do production and producing. And he's also a founding member of the Industry Standard Group, which promotes diversity, by increasing the amount of BIPOC investors and producers. Now, he's also involved in many other organizations, and you'll hear about some of those on today's episode. So we've had a lot of performers on this podcast, as well as a handful of directors and choreographers, but Rashad is the very first producer we've had on. And now, I always think that knowledge is power, so I wanted to have Rashad on to help demystify for you what a producer actually does, because we all have a good handle on what a performer does and what the role of a director is and how a costume designer works, but... Producers are that elusive little bit at the top of the marquee that people don't fully understand what they do. And sometimes there's a negative connotation to them or that they just care about money or they don't care about the art that they're making. And so I wanted to talk about that today because without a producer, art doesn't get made. And there are producers like Rashad and many others who do care about the art and that they do care about the artists that they work with. So I thought giving you this inside look would help you better understand how helpful producers are and how we need them and how it can be joyful and a creatively fulfilling and enriching experience to collaborate with them and to work with them and how you also can best be supported by them. Now, if you also want to raise money for your own projects, even if it's something small like your own one-person show, or you want to be involved with an arts organization or sit on a board at one or have a board for your own artistic pursuits, this episode will be really helpful to you. Now, speaking of taking help, I really want to help you. That is why I do this podcast. But there is a difference of just coming here and listening or watching these episodes versus actually taking action. You can't just show up. You actually have to do the work. And if you're like me, you want to work smarter, not harder. You want to do the smallest amount of work possible to get the biggest amount of results and the biggest amount of rewards. So let me help you do that. Let me help shortcut you right to your dream career by giving you a free copy of a resource I created called Dream Career Blueprint. And it shows you exactly how to construct your career based on the advice of countless industry experts. These are artistic directors, producers, casting directors, agents, all people I work with when I'm casting my own projects or that I teach alongside. And so I hear countless times again and again and again 
what they say is, you know, what they're looking for in the people they hire and what draws their eye and what convinces someone to give you the job. And so I've compiled all of that for you so you can just do exactly as they say. So you can download a free copy of your dream career blueprint at jimcooney.me forward slash blueprint. And I link to it in the show notes as well. Also, if you don't want to miss any episodes of the show, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player so you're the very first to know when the next episode is released. And while you're there, if you could please just take a moment and give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a short positive review, that would be really awesome because the podcast platforms prioritize the show based on these ratings and reviews, so it does help more people find out about this show and it can help them like it helps you. And by the way, if you want to connect with me outside of this episode, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Jim Cooney NYC. Pop on over there and say hello. All right. So here is my conversation with Rashad V. Chambers. Hello, Rashad. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited to have you on the show and to talk to you today. And it's going to be a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, we always start by just letting people explain how they describe themselves as an artist, especially someone like you who does so many different things. I think it'll be great for people to hear how you break it down. Can I break down all of them, even if they're not artist-like? <laughs> um, so I am a lawyer, a producer, a talent manager, and a general manager. Okay. All right. Well, I'll give I'll give more about that as we go through the interview here to to expand on all of those. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, Rashad and I are friends from a very long time ago. This is a, totally our relationship. I'm like the talker and he's like the one, one line answer. <laughs> um, I'm not doing it for you. What'd you say? I'm not doing your job for you. Oh yeah. Um, so talk to us about your trajectory. Cause I've seen you go from, um, when you first moved to the city and you started just, uh, being a lawyer and then you moved into talent management and then you moved in producing. Uh, and now you are a Tony winning Broadway producer. So talk to us about that trajectory from when you started. So now I'm like how, how all those dots connected. Um, sure. So, um, I started out as a lawyer. I went to, um, law school and got my MBA, um, all the while knowing that my ultimate goal was to be a Broadway producer. And so I studied theater as a hobby. I studied it independently. Even going back to college, you know, I would go to the library for four or five hours. I do my econ and then I, you know, go and read a scene from Fences. I come back and do my statistics and then go read a scene from Gypsy. So it's always sort of been a part of my journey, just really studying theater and really understanding the craft of, of this industry. When I knew I, I started learning about producing just from seeing shows and, and kind of going through a, a little rabbit hole of like what they did. And I found that it would possibly infuse all the three things that I loved in one career, you know, being a business major in college, then going to law school and in grad school for business, and then sort of studying theater, I thought, okay, I can carve out something really cool for myself. So I took a leap of faith and moved to New York to, to try to um, pursue a career in, in theater. I started out being a lawyer. Um, I took the bar exam in New York and Connecticut. Um, and then throughout my first year or so, I met a guy who was starting his own talent management company and we really hit it off. And it just felt like I had a lot of tra transferable skills to do that. So I started 
in the management field and almost in tandem started producing. I, I wanted to get some practical skills in that area. And I found out that, um, someone was doing Michael John Lacuse at the wild party for his thesis at Columbia for the MFA and directing program. And I just wrote to him blindly saying, I'm a lawyer. I want to be a producer. Can I work on this show? We met, hit it off. He invited me to work on the production. And that was the first time that I took sort of this idea in my mind to actually doing it. And I learned that I was actually good at it. Um, and then through that process, we ended up working on three more shows together. And I spent about 11 years developing new work, doing readings and off-Broadway and concerts and anything that I can do to really learn the craft of producing and, and, and understanding how all the pieces came together. And uh, through from 2018 until 22, I did seven Broadway shows as a producer. And then in the spring of 23, I did my eighth Broadway show, which was with that same director that I worked with on The Wild Party in 2007. So 16 years later, we worked on a production called Fat Ham, which was my first time being a lead producer on Broadway. And it was his first time being a director on Broadway. So we both got to achieve first together. And that director is uh, Sahim Ali, who is st still a dear friend. And um, really, I credit him for giving me my start as a producer and, you know, opening that door for me to be able to do what I do now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that's so good about, you know, I think why I'm drawn to you as a friend, too, is because as I... <laughs> kind of joked at the beginning, like I'm the dramatic one. I'm like, oh, am I freaking out about whatever? And you're just like straight one word answers and and just like, yeah, I just wanted to be a producer. So I just sent them an email and asked if I could do it. Like that's totally you. And I think that's such a good thing for people to hear is like we we sometimes make these things out to be way bigger of a deal than they need to be. It literally could just be a simple email just saying, like you said, I'm a lawyer. I want to get into producing. Can we meet? <laughs> you know, and then that that launched everything. And so I think it's a good uh, lesson for people to to take away from this is just keep it as simple as possible. It's something you keep telling me that, you know, every time I reach out to you with some kind of conflict or whatever, um, and that's really helpful advice. And it's like something we just need to keep reminding ourselves that it's not that serious. It's something you say all the time. It's not that serious. <laughs> I think we often make things harder than they need to be. And some of that is fear. Some of it is, you know, uh, what they call it, gremlins in the, in the life coaching world. Um, you know, we have these little things in the back of our mind that tell us that we can't do things or we're not good enough or um, I don't really have those. <laughs> it allows me to just kind of just move forward uh, unapologetically. But what I've learned just from working with lots of different people from the business world, theater world, et cetera, is that, um, you know, a lot of people try to anticipate the answers and you can't always do that. Sometimes you just have to, to try. And I've always believed that you can't fail if you tried because so much of the hurdle in life is just saying yes or just pursuing something. And a lot of times we let fear 
or the possibility of rejection prevent us from even trying? And how can you grow or learn if you do that? And so while I'm not good at everything, and while I certainly have had my share of rejection in my career, um, I've never had a fear of trying. I've never had a feel, fear of failing because um, I've just always had people believe in me and I've always had people encouraging me. And so I know, you know, let's say tomorrow I try to do a Broadway show and, you know, it opens and closes the same day. That won't feel great, but I won't feel like I failed because I at least tried, at least did it, you know, and I at least I will have learned something from that experience. So that's just what I try to keep in the back of my mind when whenever I'm pursuing something or when someone like you comes to me for advice, you know, I, I really just try to be as objective as possible and sort of break down the scenarios so that um, everyone can have action steps and feel comfortable moving forward. Yeah. Well, and the one story you shared is like, okay, I wrote to them and they said, yes, but I know how many times you've submitted your scripts for things and tried to set up meetings with people and you got no's from those things. So it's not just this fairy tale that, oh, Rashad wrote to this one person, they said yes. And then the, the, the whole career is made. I mean, you, you send out a lot of emails, you do a lot of pitching. I know as a producer, you have to raise money. So you're constantly reaching out to people and, um, you know, people don't see all the rejection that anyone uses, but there is a lot of that. We just right. hear about the one success story. Or the journey. I mean, as I just said a few minutes ago, I did my first show in 2007 and I didn't do my first Broadway show until 2018. So in, in the world that we live in now where everybody wants something immediately or people think about being an overnight success, that was 11 years of working and grinding and praying and hustling and, you know, not knowing how I was going to do it, not coming from a wealthy family, not coming from uh, knowing any producers, you know, it was really just me making relationships, networking, and, you know, really trying to do these smaller things that allow people to see not only my work ethic, but my work product to get to that goal. So if you want to really think about it, it took me 13 years to achieve my goal. And now luckily I'm able to do it a lot easier um, and be able to have a lot more connections. But there are a lot of people that would stick around for 13 years. So I just want to highlight that because sometimes people only see the glory but they don't see the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the effort. Right. So just from, cause you have done a lot of reaching out to people. Have you learned anything along the way of like, this is more successful if you say this, or if you don't say that, like any tricks or tips you found that, you know, seem to work better now that you've been doing it so long? Nothing specific in terms of the type of content. Um, I will say that people can glean what type of person you are by the way you communicate. And a lot of that is email, you know, um, simple things like sentence structure or proofing your emails. You know, we're all guilty, especially now when everything's sort of on your iPhone and you're, you're sending emails while on the go, you know, just know that that is a part of your brand and how you make impressions on people and um 
you don't want to make a bad first impression. So just trying to be mindful of how you communicate with people. Um, also, just giving people grace. You're reaching out to somebody who may not know you. And you, of course, want a response immediately. But some people don't have the bandwidth to respond immediately. Some people want to respond when they have the time to send you a well-written email. So that may take 24 or 48 hours. So I would say if you don't hear back from somebody, give them a few days and then follow up in a nice way, just saying, you know, oh, hey, I just wanted to reach out again and follow up on this email. Sometimes people are a little aggressive, like they send an email Friday at 5 p.m. And then on Monday morning at 10 a.m., they're like, hey, I'm just checking in. It's like, okay, there was a whole weekend. You're not, you know, you don't have any demands on my time. So just trying to figure out that balance of like when to follow up to be, you know, sort of assertive or aggressive without being annoying and also just being mindful of how you communicate, making sure that you address people properly. If you don't know them, some people want to be addressed as like, dear Mr. or dear Ms. or whatever, or dear doctor, as opposed to like, hey, Jim, blah, 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 blah. You know, if I've earned my my place as a leader in this industry, you know, know how to communicate with me. So those would be my little tidbits mm -hmm. of this communication and and how to do that effectively. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, we, you know, we've talked the difference between a producer and, you know, a creative producer and uh, you know, especially TV as it when they you're a producer in TV, it's a totally different thing. But in theater, you know, what do you see as the role as a producer? Like, what is your job? And, you know, and also like if you want to share the difference between, you know, theater producing and then being a more of a creative producer in the theater and how that plays out in different in different ways. Sure. So I look at it as there's, you know, four or five different types of producers within a theater. At the very top level, you have the lead producer or the general partner. And if you ever go to a show and you look at that very top line, you'll usually see like either one to maybe four people there. I like to equate them to the CEO of the company. They're the ones that um, are hiring everyone. They're making all the decisions in terms of key art, when a press release goes out, um, who's on the team, you know, whether that be the director or the marketing agency or the company manager, the stage manager, et cetera, they're making all of those decisions in addition to raising the money. So all of that responsibility goes to them. Also, the liability is with them. If the show is not doing well and they're running out of money, they either have to put that money in themselves or they have to go out and get a loan from somebody else to be able to keep the show afloat. Um, but they are literally doing everything and it can often be a 24 seven job when you have, um, a show running specifically on Broadway. Um, but they also have the power and they also are getting more money, um, than other people. So that's sort of the top line. That's lead producer or general partner is the boss. Then under that, you will have a co-producer, which is how I started out on Broadway. And your main responsibility is raising money. Once you do that, you really don't have to do anything else. Although for most shows, you're often invited to a monthly or bi-monthly 
co-producer meeting or marketing meeting that um, the team will have just to review ticket sales, to review upcoming events, et cetera. Um, but the main focus of a co-producer is to raise money. So a lead producer may reach out to you and say, Jim, I'd love for you to join my show. We have three different levels that you can join. Um, I'll give you the example for Fat Ham. Um, you could either raise $400,000 or above, 250 to 399 or um, $125 to $249. So those are basically the three levels. And I would say, okay, Jim, I want you on a team. What do you think you can raise? And you say, okay, this is my first time. I want to be conservative. So I'm just going to raise $125,000. And I come to you and say, great, you can have this slot. It's $25,000 a unit, meaning that each investor who wants to come in, the minimum that they can put in is $25,000. And then you would have the task of getting at least five people to put in 25,000, or you can do a combination of whatever you want. You can get one person to do 75, another person to do 50, but at, a, at the bare minimum, you need five people to do 25 in order to reach your threshold to get your credit and, and be aligned with the slot that you have taken. Um, and then in addition to those two roles, some shows will have an executive producer and executive producer helps the lead producer run the day-to-day -day of the company. The executive producer is not responsible for raising money, but really helping with the oversight of the entire production. And I found that people hire an executive producer for one of two reasons. One, it may be that they have the show, they have the ability to raise all the money, but they don't really have the experience as a lead producer and they don't. Um, maybe have all of the connections that are not necessary in the industry. So they may bring on an executive producer just to kind of help bridge the gap to say, oh, you have a great relationship with the theater owners or you, um, you really understand um, how to do a marketing campaign for Broadway. I don't know how to do that. I only know how to do film or I only know how to do Fortune 500 businesses. You know, you may bring on an executive producer to help fill in that gap. And then another reason somebody may bring on an executive producer is because they have multiple shows at one time. So they can't be everywhere all at once. So they bring on somebody to help them just sort of um, help with the day to day. You know, if you have a if you have three shows running on Broadway, that's a lot of meetings between the press meetings, the marketing meetings, the general management meetings, etc. So you may bring on an EP to help you. Um, and then you have your assist, associate producer, which um, can be somebody who comes on board and raises a smaller amount of money, depending on the show, or it can sometimes be the assistant to the lead producer, but they're doing so much work on a day-to-day basis that the producer gives them a sort of higher title. And then lastly, um, you will have, a lot of times you'll just have an assistant to the producers. And that person is just helping with, you know, anything that needs to be done, proofing things, sending emails, managing calendars, less fun things like getting Ubers and lunches, but necessary things to help the lead producer really be able to focus on, on, on his or her job. Hmm. And those are main levels of uh, producing. And within that, there is uh, a combination of both creative working with directors and designers and really helping that vision come to life. 
in business, which means um, raising money, making sure that the show is staying within budget, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something that you do well. You do both those things. And I, I think there's other producers I know who are really great at the money side and they don't maybe have the skills or the desire to be on the artistic side. And then there's people who just want to be on the creative side that don't really have the money raising skills. So it's good that you actually straddle both very well. Um, yeah, I started out more creative and then I had to learn how to raise money as I started um, getting into to the Broadway space. And it's a necessary evil. You can't do the show without money. Right. So I'm still learning, but yes, I have, I have managed to be able to do both. Right. And so how do you, for someone who's like, well, I want to produce my one person show or they have a smaller project or something, how, how do you go about getting the money for this and asking people? By just asking, you know, it starts off with, off with friends or friends of friends or colleagues that, that, you know, um, the one thing that I've learned is that everyone invests for different reasons, but oftentimes people invest because they're investing in you. So some people want to do a show because it has a big star. Some people do it because the subject matter resonates with them. But at the end of the day, you know, they're also investing in you, understanding your vision and what you're passionate about. So I've learned that I need to do shows that mean something to me because when I talk about them, people see how I respond to the material. They see how my eyes light up when I talk about it. And that makes them excited about being involved. Um, Ultimately, people want to know that you're being responsible with the money, that you have a plan, and that even if the show doesn't make money, that you've created a good experience for them. And mm-hmm. so I've started with um, with friends. You know, by the time I started producing on Broadway, a lot of my friends from law school or business school were starting to be partners or directors. And so they had a little extra income to be able to to invest in shows. And um, yeah, the, the biggest thing that I can say is, you know, share your art with people. You know, there are people who are watching you now, people who are, are supporting you that you don't even know about. And if you don't ask for what you need, you'll never know that. So those, those are the couple of things that I've learned um, through fundraising. Yeah, it's really a good point. I think people watch us more than we know that they are more than we realize or more than they tell us because you know we don't walk around and and just praise everyone that we see and everyone that we know but we we see what they're doing and we're impressed by it but sometimes we just don't always verbalize that and i know like the first time i had an agent for um choreography it was like they approached me and like they had known me and, and known my work and i was just kind of surprised like oh wow you really knew like you knew all this stuff and i just you know people are seeing more than than they than we think that they are it's true. And this is this is a good time to mention um, that is a huge reason why you you have to treat people well in this business. Um, I, who you see on your way up is who you will see on your way down. And it's such a small industry that people talk. You know, I've I've had clients not get jobs because creatives have done, you know, quote unquote, background checks on them. And got negative feedback. And regardless of whether it was a reality or perception, that person wasn't willing to take the risk. So it's really important to um, just navigate this business with kindness because everyone is talented. But if that person is 
even a little less talented, but a lot nicer. And I know they're not going to give me problems in the room. I'm going to hire the second best person just for my own peace of mind, mm. as opposed to somebody who is amazing, but like really difficult to work with. You know, 10 to six is a long time to be in a rehearsal room with somebody who's problematic. So just remembering that is, is so important. And, and again, you know, allow your work to speak for itself, allow your kindness to speak for itself and, and you'll be okay. You know, I had, um, an executive at a really big music company reach out to me on Facebook out of the blue. I had never met him. And he's, oh, I've heard such great things about you. Can we get together? I'd love to learn more, you know? And that was just so random. So it's just, it happens when, when you are aligned with um, purpose and kindness and hard work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, if someone wanted to hire a producer, then like if they are like, okay, I'm not going to raise this money myself. I want to hire someone else to be in charge of that. How does someone go about hiring a producer? Like if you're a writer or, um, you know, a theater company that wants to get, you know, ha have a producer come on board, like what's the process for that? Usually an email start with, it starts with some outreach and, and also being specific about what you need. Are you looking for a producer to help? raise money? Are you looking for a producer to help get it to the next level? Do you have the money yourself, but you just need somebody that can, you know, do the checks and balances for you? Understanding exactly what you need is a, is a big crucial step in it, but also just reaching out and also doing your research on who's the best producer for you. If you are doing this really amazing, but gritty and dark type of piece, maybe the producer of Mamma Mia is not right for you or, or vice versa. If you have this like really happy go lucky, you know, 42nd street type of show, maybe you don't want to have the producer that only produces like serious dramas. So just understanding sort of what you need and who's the right person to do that. Um, oftentimes when I get pitched shows, it's because they're looking for uh, leadership. They're looking for somebody that can maybe raise some money. They're looking for somebody that maybe can help them get um, a production out of it, whether that's regional or off-Broadway or, or, or some other sort of incubator. Um, so just understanding what you need and, and who is the right fit for your show um, would be logical first steps for me. Yeah. So basically the theme of today is that it's always just reaching out and asking the question. Always, you know, you can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. You need other people. And it really does take a village to be able to bring something to fruition. Yeah. This is something I talked about with Chris Catelli when he was on the podcast earlier this season of just like how collaborative of an art form this is. And so, yeah, we, we do need people. But I think your point is good, too, about being specific, because I know for at least from my point of view, a lot of people will reach out to me, you know, wanting advice on something or help with something. And it's just like, can I pick your brain? or what, you know, very generic thing. Can we go get coffee? Cause I want to talk to you about X, Y, Z or whatever. And if I drill down a little bit and just say, what well, specifically, and then they say that I'm like, oh, well, I could just answer that in one sentence for you. Like, we don't need to go get coffee. Like I can just tell you right now what the answer is. You can have it instantly. You know, I think it's going to save everyone time if you just are specific in your communication about what you're actually needing. Cause also that helps the person know whether they have the time to help you or in, in your case as a producer, if they can take the project on or if they can raise the money for you. But 
I think being specific, even in that first communication is a really good point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you are involved or you are a founding member of the industry standard group and you help train uh, the next wave of producers of BIPOC producers and investors. Um, so I know you're already uh, working on that as well, but for anyone who um, wants to become a producer, like what are some of the resources you would recommend or how would they learn that? And then I also, I do want to hear more about the industry standard group too. Yeah, there's a lot of new programs that are popping up for producers. First of all, I I like reading. Um, so when I was younger and just starting out, I read um, a book called From Options to Opening, which um, is by Donald Farber and is a great resource. I'm assuming maybe it's updated. I don't know. Maybe it's still the same one that I read 20 years ago. But um, it just tells you all aspects of theater from like how to make a deal, example agreements, different phases of like different types of producing all those things, which is great. And Donald also had another book called producing theater. Um, so those are two great resources. Um, there are a lot of different fellowships that have popped up through theater producers of color to black theater coalition. Um, but also theater resources unlimited has different producing classes and seminars. Um, in addition to uh, the Commercial Theater Institute, which I think may be on a little hiatus right now. Um, but those are all resources for people to learn about producing. Uh, Ken Davenport has a newsletter podcast that also talks about producing where he sort of gives overview. And there's also um, a resource called The Business of Broadway that is led by three Broadway producers and they do different seminars and, and, and newsletters as well. So there is a wealth of information out there. Um, and then just reaching out to people who are doing what you want to do and, and asking them for insight or asking them about their journey or process, I think is very helpful. Everyone's is different. There are many people who you know, this may be their second act. Maybe they were a real estate person or an actor or something first, and then they decided to transition into producing. There are some people who go to various programs. Columbia has a school for producing and general management. So um, just figuring out like what you want to do and then and then figuring out that path and the stepping stones um, will be beneficial. I really just learned on my own. I treated my 11 years of developing new work as an informal MFA. And I just met in with everyone I could. I would go to back before CTI was like really popular. The Broadway League had a producer development program. So I joined that and I would go to all of those seminars. And then I just started doing the work. I started like optioning plays and just collaborating with writers and directors to be able to sort of flesh those things out. So. There's not really any right or wrong way of doing it, but you do really need to understand the craft of um, of theater and how to do it and, and being humble and realizing what your strengths are and surrounding yourselves with people who may be able to teach you things that you don't know. And if you're like, I can't really raise money, but I can really break down the script and be able to put together a full team then you go out and find a partner who can raise the money. Or if you're like, you know what? I can only raise money. I don't know anything about creativity, but I know what I like. 
then the opposite. You partner with somebody who can be more of a creative mind for, for a project. So I think all of those things just sort of get you into the right lane in terms of being able to, to start producing. Yeah, that's a really good point because I know you used to have a, or maybe you still do have your partner that you produced with. And I know of other friends of mine that there are partnerships and or small groups, like three or four people. And that's a good, that's a good um, idea too. You know, you don't have to do it all yourself. Right. Um, so, and I know like with, you know, you wrote, you reached out to someone for like when you got your start. And one thing I know about you is you're very good about helping the next, you know, generation, you always have interns with you and people that you're mentoring and um, talk to us about the industry standard group and how you started that and, and the mission and, and whatnot. Sure. So I was actually approached um, by some colleagues in the industry who I think a lot of them had worked on Town, and all of them were people of color and had found that they were just navigating a lot of homogenous spaces. You know, there just wasn't a lot of diversity. There weren't a lot of people of color. And after George Floyd was murdered, they wanted to do something as a way to change the landscape. So they called a handful of us and, and eight of us started on Zoom in the summer of 2020 to create this organization that would um, help lower the barriers to entry and be able to diversify commercial theater, specifically Broadway. So it was intended to be able to bring in more BIPOC investors and producers to be able to not only have more people um, working in the industry, but also being able to bring more diverse shows. So for, oh, and it also allows us to have both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, the SEC has guidelines on who can invest in a Broadway show. And they specifically mandate, for the most part, I'm trying to say this with, with a little wiggle room, but most Broadway shows require you to be an accredited investor. And that means that as an individual, you make at least $200,000, or as a couple, you um, collectively earn... Uh, at least $300,000, you have a million dollars in assets and there's like a couple more, but most people sort of check those two boxes. Um, And it's, it's because they feel like if you meet that criteria, you're a bit more savvy and you understand the risk of what, what investing in theater is. They're trying to avoid um, the scenario, like in the producers, if you've ever seen that, that show where they were going after these rich old ladies and getting their life savings. And, Although they had the money, that was all the money they had. And so the SEC wants to protect investors so um, big, bad producers won't take advantage of them. Um, And they don't really allow accredited investors, one, for that reason, to make sure that they understand what they're getting into. But then it also just creates a lot more paperwork for everyone to have them. So we're taking on that, that burden of the paperwork. And we're working with SEC lawyers to... Um, be able to to raise money through both. And, you know, a lot of people can't afford $25,000 or even $5,000. So for non-accredited investors, you can become a member for as little as $500. And then for accredited investors, if you were like, oh, I have a little money, I want to, you know, dip a, you know, a little toe into this water, 
they can come on board for $5,000. And then collectively, as an institution, we will invest in a number of shows and be able to be able to not only provide investment opportunities into the shows, but provide resources to educate people and, and also provide more um, networking opportunities for, for various people. So that was sort of the genesis of the company. We're still working on it. Um, it had ne it's never been done before. So it's now been a little over three years and we've, we've raised a chunk of money, but we have a, um, a higher threshold to get to in order for the entity itself to be accredited to then invest in shows, which will allow us to take both accredited and non-accredited money. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. Yeah, it's it's been really amazing to work with seven other like-minded people um, who we all have different skill sets. You know, we, theater is a nucleus, but some people are specializing in marketing and social media. Some are producing, some are, you know, doing other things. But it's been really cool to do something that hasn't been done before and to try to change the landscape of commercial theater and the buy-in that we've been able to get from a lot of the major leaders in the industry has been really, really cool. Um, I was at a party last night and um, one of, one producer who was an early sort of advocate um, has been telling everybody about the organization and, and trying to get people to donate. And so that has been nice to be able to have some, some pretty big fish um, support the mission and want to help amplify it. Yeah. Especially when we talked earlier about, you know, having an artistic producer or someone that's more on the creative side, you know, if you want to tell stories of different kinds of people, you need to have producers of different kinds of people, right? So I think it's, you know, we can do our work as directors and choreographers in the way we cast shows and, you know, theaters can hire different writers to come in and things, but ultimately the, it has to come from the top as well. And so I think it's, you know, it's really great that you're doing this and helping change all that. Cause I feel like that's the last domino that needs to be like knocked over so we can really like open up because you, you see how much even just from, from the pandemic till now, all the kinds of shows we've had on Broadway, that's like really just opened up their creativity and given new voices to people. And it's just been wonderful. So, um, I'm excited that you're doing this. I think it's going to just keep making it better and better. I hope so. Yeah. Um, so last thing I want to ask you about it. I know you sit on a boards for a few places too, like houses on the moon and, the the on Broadway performing training, training arts program, right? Is that what I say, right? Yeah. Uh, Broadway performing arts training program. Yes. Performing arts training program. Yeah. And then just recently at the time of this recording, at least you got voted into the board of governors for the Broadway league too. So what is that like for sitting on a board? You know, do you feel like that's under the producer camp as well? Um, and if someone wants to get involved in an arts organization, is this like the best way to do it is by sitting on a board or what does that whole look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a combination. I mean, there are people on on boards of theaters and other arts institutions that have zero artistic ability. <laughs> I mean, you really want to have various skill sets on a board because everybody is devoting their time to make the organization's mission come alive. Um, I would say that I am probably on these boards because I'm a producer first. Um, but I also use a little bit of my legal brain whenever there are certain agreements that need to be done. Or if, you know, we get a volunteer lawyer, I may be the one that serves as a liaison between the organization and that particular lawyer. 
But ultimately, I love being on board because it's a way to give back. And it's a way to be able to help um, just sort of amplify um, various organizations. Houses on the Moon is a theater company that um, the mission is to amplify the unheard voice. And most of the, the work that we develop and produce has a sort of social justice um, uh, slant to it. So it could be gun control, prison reform, and domestic violence, immigration, et cetera. And we not only do traditional shows in theaters, but we also do touring productions that go to prisons and jails and be able to just sort of share art with the community. And so I've been on the board for about five years and, and I really love the mission of the organization. And so I'm using whatever sort of skill sets or connections that I have to be able to help the, the organization just maintain its corporate structure to be able to um, raise money for the organization so that we can continue performing and, and producing work. And um, yeah, and just really being able to sort of hold up a mirror and, and allow people to, to learn, to change, to transform, which has been really cool. And then the um, on-Broadway Performing Arts Training Program was created by Broadway veteran Rima Webb, and she just loved teaching. She loved being able to give back. And so she created this sort of conservatory program for um, kids ages like 5 to 17 to immerse them into the arts in terms of acting, singing, and dancing. And she's found that even the students who did not want to pursue a career in the arts, they benefited from the program greatly because it taught them how to communicate. It helped some of them who were very shy get out of their out of their shells and be able to speak publicly, to make friends, to be able to articulate themselves more. And so that's been really great just to see the how the how young kids have grown and you know, some of them want to pursue the arts and, you know, she's helped some of them, you know, really learn the craft. Some of them get agents, some of them be able to get those stepping stones to be able to train in order to sort of be able to, to, to learn and grow. So um, I think no matter what discipline you're in, you will have some viable skills that a board can benefit from, whether it's, you know, you have a finance background, um, a theater background, a uh, casting background, like all of those things are beneficial to the board. And the more diversity you have in skill sets, the better off the board is because you get more perspectives. And ultimately, everybody is working to make sure the theater or the organization um, is is better or enhanced. Um, and in terms of the Broadway League, I have no idea what I'm what I'm going to getting myself into. But um, I love being a producer. I love the Broadway community. The Broadway League is sort of the governing body for producers, general managers, and presenters, those who um, own theaters around the country. And every day, the organization is working to, you know, create more theater, to um, work with the government on grants and uh, initiatives for anything that impacts Broadway or New York or around the country. Um, and so in terms of trying to get theater back to where it was in 2019, to create more diversity, to create more equity, 
Um, I'm very humbled to have been nominated and selected for for this position. And I'm looking forward to working with some really amazing people in New York and around the country to um, to be able to do this. And, you know, throughout the past three years, the Broadway League has been instrumental in in helping to get New York back afloat. You know, they lobbied to get this New York musical theater tax credit, which is, you know, um, really been critical for a lot of shows to be able to to thrive. You know, they were responsible in, in the legislation for the Save Our Stages grants that many mm. organizations, individuals receive. So it's just really important work that needs to be done. And, you know, I want the, the Broadway community to be better than when I entered it. And so if I can just have a small piece of that, um, that is what I will do for the next three years while while I am on the board. Yeah. That's amazing. As I, I think there's so many people that are in our generation that are, I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. It's like, I think we're all trying to just make it better than it was when we entered it because we see the potential and I don't know, maybe the pandemic just cracked things open a little bit so people could step back and reassess more, but it feels like things are shifting, especially as the younger people or, you know, more and more younger people are coming up through the ranks. I feel like it is starting to shift. Um, so yeah, that's, that's exciting. I, I think too, like what you said about having a variety of voices, because I, I have some friends who've started, you know, theater companies or dance companies, and they decided to form a board and then other people who didn't. And the ones who form a board, I feel like even if they're not a nonprofit, but they just like a board of friends or advisors or whatever it is, um, it just seems to be a lot more successful because you do have all these different skill sets that can help you instead of like you trying to figure it out yourself. It's It's very much like what we talked about earlier with having you know, producers or, or partners of producers and whatnot. So I think that's a good point for people to, to understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it takes a village, like I said before, and just to be able to have somebody who knows law, somebody who knows business, somebody who knows theater, somebody who knows accounting, somebody who knows how to event planning, you know, there all of these things that you have to do, like imagine having all these smart people, but nobody knows how to put together an event. So then your one opportunity to raise money is a gala and it's a disaster because it's just not organized properly, you know? So just being able to have different perspectives in a room can, can really help. And if you're interested in being on a board, you should, you know, reach out to organizations, get to know what they do, go to their events. That's how I started with Houses on the Moon. A friend invited me to just a cultivation event. I went and really liked the mission of the organization. And then they approached me about, about joining the board. So there are so many organizations, whether it's arts or not, um, who are looking for people who share the mission of the organization, people who want to make the organization better and who want to make some change. So um, I would say align yourselves with organizations that um, you're passionate about or have missions that you're passionate about and then and see if they're a good fit for you mm -hmm. well, that's good advice for anything in the arts align with the things you're passionate about <laughs> yes indeed yeah well thank you so much this was incredible information um anything else that you feel like is important to talk about that we didn't touch on i know we i could talk to you forever because we didn't talk about you being a talent manager or any of these other things you do but um anything that you feel like is pressing that you want to say Um, I don't think so. I mean, I guess you have a lot of different types of um, artists that 
that subscribe and listen to your podcast. Um, I guess the one thing that I would just close with is just remembering to enjoy the journey of it all. I think so many times um, we focus on the end result and we don't think about the path to that result. So you have a lot of people who end up on Broadway miserable because they don't, because they expected some glittery, shiny thing. And it can, it's sometimes it's the same thing that you had in community theater. It's just more money and more resources, you know? But like, if you, if you enjoy the process of going to the audition or going to that regional gig or doing that workshop and really focus on the art, I think it just makes it more worthwhile and also balanced. Find people in your life that are not in the arts, that don't care about you just when you're working on Broadway, that can, they don't care who was nominated for a Tony. Like, they're just like, I just want to know how you are. And I think the more you can do that, the more well-rounded you'll be and the better off you will be when you walk in the room. Because regardless of how great of an actor you think you are, people can feel that stress or desperation or whatever where you walk in a room and i found out the more well-rounded you can be the better an artist you can be because you've lived life you've had other things to talk about just besides auditions and sides and breakdowns all those things like a hockey game like take a pottery class like all of those things go into who you are as an artist and your self-worth is not just about when you're working and just remember that like, yeah, you need to work, you need to make money, but just remember that, you know, along the journey, you have to find joy. You have to have joy in order to sustain this business. Otherwise you're going to be burnt out and you're going to ultimately quit. So I would leave with those little tidbits because it's really important to check in with ourselves and remember why are we doing this? Are we enjoying it? And it's okay if you moved here to be an actor and then five years in, you realize I'm not excited about this anymore. I don't feel the joy that I once felt. It's okay to do something else. It's okay to do casting. It's okay to do stage management or producing, you know? The, it does an ebb and flow to this world, you know? And so you have to find what makes you tick and what makes you happy that's amazing thank you for sharing that my pleasure all right well thank you so much for being here and uh i will share your social media handles and stuff on the uh, show notes for this so people can get in touch with you if they have questions or want to say hi but thank you very much for being here today thank you for having me okay bye all right bye Well, there's not much more to say after Rashad's final thoughts other than I couldn't agree more. And if you're going to take one thing away from this episode, I really hope it's the confidence to reach out to the people you want to work with and just ask, have a conversation, start a conversation. But his parting words about finding the joy, that's just such a beautiful ribbon to tie up this episode in a bow. Now, before I say goodbye, don't forget to get your free copy of the Dream Career Blueprint so you can start putting all of this into action. And you can download a free copy by going to jimcooney.me forward slash blueprint or clicking the link to it in the show notes. 
And just a reminder, if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe. And while you're there, please leave the show a five-star review, especially if you think this podcast will be helpful for someone else. And if you've got any questions, you can give me a shout. I'm on Instagram at JimCooneyNYC. And if you really love this show, leaving a small tip is greatly appreciated. It helps cover the cost of producing this. And so there's a link in the show notes for you to leave a small tip if you choose. Remember, there is no one on the planet who is just like you. Stay true to the gifts you have and who you are. Thank you so very much for tuning in today. Now, here's a little preview of next week's episode. I will see you then. Imperfect action is better than taking perfect inaction. And because that action is usually something we don't know how to do yet, because it's something we haven't done, that's why we are growing, it's something we don't know how to do, it's not going to be pretty when we take that action. It's going to be imperfect. Think about the first time you tried to sing a high C or do a double pirouette. It's going to be imperfect. And so that is why we are not motivated to take action and why we don't want to take the action. And so we just stay where we are. We stay stuck. Well, let's get you unstuck. Let's give you some tips and tricks where you love taking imperfect action so you can grow faster than you ever have before.